verses 16 and 17. I promise you we are not going backwards uh, tonight, uh, but this uh, text really does encapsulate the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, and so uh, we're going to uh, look at some background of the Protestant Reformation tonight, uh, what the five solas are, doing a kind of overview of them, and then looking at how they come out of actually uh, this verse, which had, has such a big impact on Martin Luther's own conversion. Uh, so please stand with me for the reading of God's Word in Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Would you pray with me? Uh, our Lord, we give you thanks and praise for your word, your word which is uh, inspired, your word which is inerrant, your word which is authoritative and sufficient and efficacious and necessary uh, for uh, the church. And so we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us from your written words, that you would show us Christ, uh, that you would help us to understand better. Uh, the important foundational doctrines uh, in your word which sparked the Protestant Reformation. And Lord, bless this series over the next few weeks uh, as we uh, look to you for grace and wisdom and uh, the enlightenment of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, in the year 1517, uh, God uh, raised up an Augustinian uh, monk named Martin Luther. Uh, who nailed the 95 Theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. You're familiar with the story. In God's providence, uh, his work, Luther's work of reformation in the church, sparked reformations all over Europe. In fact, if you look at academic titles of books on the Reformation, you will often see the Reformation um, uh, described as the Reformations, plural, because they were happening all over Europe, and they, many of them were very uh, different. Uh, many godly reformers uh, were influenced by Luther and, of course, uh, emerged all over Europe, such as John Knox and Zwingli and John Calvin. I'll mention them again later. And from these ministries, the Protestant church was born. Uh, lest I get too elementary, I mentioned this morning in Sunday school that the preaching needs to be plain and understandable. A lot of people haven't thought about the fact that Protestant, to be a Protestant, has the word what in it? Protest. A protest. And so Protestantism began as a protest against medieval Roman Catholic doctrine and tradition. And so we are Protestants. The Protestant church was born there uh, in the 1520s and 1530s uh, when with the uh, derisive term was given to these, these, these uh, Christians who were not pleased with the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. They called them Protestants. They were protesting. The world was turned upside down during these days of uh, what scholars call the Renaissance and the Reformation. Rather than merely trust in church tradition and the leadership of popes and councils, Ministers were going ad fontes, that is, back to the sources, back uh, to the ultimate truth, the ultimate fountain of truth, namely the Word of God. 
Out of the Protestant Reformation came many key doctrines distinguishing Protestant doctrine from, again, Roman Catholic doctrine. If you were uh, a Christian, as it were, uh, prior to, let's just say, the early 16th century and prior, uh, you would have not seen a different kind of denomination on every corner. It wasn't the South where you can be on any major corner and have a Methodist church, a Baptist church, a Presbyterian church, a, a Catholic church, a, a non-denominational church, a congregational church. And we have all these different denominations and churches. That's what we've grown up, and that's what we have uh, become used to, of course. Uh, but this is um, a very different uh, landscape. The only church was the Roman Catholic church. Uh, that's it. Uh, and so uh, that's what you would have seen. You would have uh, the main church in the village. If you were in a larger town, there would have been a kind of our city had been a cathedral there uh, with bishops and different kinds of leaders uh, and all uh, pointing back to Rome itself uh, where uh, the pontiff, the pope, uh, would reside. Uh, but these key doctrines that, that were born out of the Protestant Reformation uh, are summarized in the five solas of the Reformation. Now, after this series is over, uh, no one can say, you know, Pastor John taught us everything that the, the Reformation was about in these five solas. No. No, this is skimming the surface. And these are summaries of the very important foundational doctrines that emerged out of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, there were no books written during the Reformation called the five solas of the Reformation. People weren't running around with flags with five solas on it. Uh, that, this wasn't the case. Uh, it's kind of like the five points of Calvinism. You know, Calvin never wrote the five points of Calvinism. Uh, they were extracted from Calvin's writings when uh, long after Calvin was dead. Uh, in 1618, 19, at the Synod of Dort, when uh, some uh, heretics brought forth teaching, the remonstrants, which were categorically opposite and antithetical to what are now, as we understand, the five points of Calvinism. Uh, but I digress. Uh, back to the five solas. Uh, tonight, as I mentioned before, I want to give a, a, an introduction to the Protestant Reformation and an overview to the five solas and how our text uh, this evening encourages us uh, for modern Reformation today. You'll see another text there in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, uh, 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, I spent some time reading that uh, later. I read it in Sunday school this morning. It's an important one for understanding uh, the high view of Scripture that the Reformers had uh, in the 16th century. So what is Reformation? Anyway, we talk about the Protestant Reformation, and then we talk about towards a modern Reformation. Do you think we need Reformation today in the life of the church, in the life of the American church, or the life of the worldwide church? Well, many would argue yes. Um, there have been books written in the last couple of years entitled something like this, Is the Reformation Over? Should we stop talking about the Reformation? Should we stop saying we need a Reformation? Well, the answer is no, we shouldn't stop talking about that. And yes, we still need reformation. We always need reformation. Uh, we, we're always having to fight against error and, and, and bring ourselves back to the truth. But what is reformation? Well, the Oxford Dictionary defines it, first of all, as a radical change for the better. A radical change for the better. 
And then secondly, the definition is the 16th century movement for the reform of abuses in the Roman Catholic Church ending in the establishment of the Reformed or Protestant churches. So the errors, uh, the theological abuses, those kinds of things um, for the establishment of the Reformed or Protestant churches. Uh, one thing that's important to remember, I can discuss it more later, um, is there really is a pretty big difference between the Lutheran Reformation and the Reformed Reformation. Uh, in fact, the Lutherans and the Reformed were, were always sort of clashing in, in, the, uh, in the 16th century. Uh, some of them were trying to get together, to work together, to bring everybody together, uh, but Luther... Uh, who was real bombastic and uh, was kind of hard to deal with and to work with, uh, he was uh, sort of always pushing others away who were trying to come together. It was complicated. There were theological issues at play. Uh, but there's the Lutheran Reformation and the Reformed Reformation. And then, of course, you had the Anabaptists as well. And that's a whole other category. The, Prot the Protestant Reformation truly was a radical change uh, for the better, because for centuries, the Roman Catholic Church had, in general, obscured the light of the gospel of grace due to a fundamental mis misinterpretation of Scripture and the placing of tradition and ecclesiastical authority on the same level of, and at times even above, the Word of God. Above the Word of God. And so, uh, we as Protestants have always believed in what we're going to learn in a minute, sola scriptura. Uh, we believe that the Bible alone is the word of God and that it is above all tradition, confessions, and creeds, and catechisms, um, and councils. Uh, we do not put the Westminster Assembly equal with or above the word of God. It is beneath it, uh, always in submission to it. Uh, now, uh, in the Protestant Reformation, of course, we have the preaching and teaching of writing and writing of reformers like uh, Martin Luther, who we've mentioned from Germany, Ulrich Zwingli from Zurich, John Knox of Edinburgh, Scotland, Peter Martyr Vermigli of Italy, John Calvin of Geneva, and many others. And their lives are fascinating to study. And if you're interested in reading about any of them, I would be glad to recommend uh, some one-volume um, summaries of the Reformation, as well as individual biographies of these different reformers. Thousands of ordinary people all around Europe uh, began to understand the life-transforming power of the gospel. The light of God's truth was penetrating people's minds all over Europe as the word of God was being preached. Of course, in God's providence in the 1450s, uh, we had the invention of what? The printing press. Johannes Gutenberg uh, uh, established and created, invented the printing press, which made it uh, so much easier then to provide literature, to print literature, to get it into ordinary people's hands. Uh, and of course, you can go there to the Gutenberg Museum in Mainz, Germany. Some of you have may have been there before, and it's fascinating. In fact, they have one of the original Gutenberg Bibles right there in a case that was uh, printed. Uh, so as we study this church history, let's remember that, that uh, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us to remember that great cloud of witnesses 
uh, and their faithful uh, witness to us. Uh, they were flawed men and women in Hebrews 11, but men and women who were faithful uh, in their lives to the end uh, for the glory of, of God. And it's important to study church history. We need to know uh, what to tenaciously and uncompromisingly hold on to as Christian believers and be inspired to do so. Uh, and uh, let me just say this. There is a need for modern reformation today. There's a big need for modern reformation today. The, the modern evangelical church, in many ways, looks similar to the medieval church of Rome. Now, I don't have a, a lot of time tonight to elaborate on those connections. I'll do so uh, later. But uh, one of the things we see that is uh, similar is the consumerism uh, of the medieval church and in the present-day health and wealth gospels. The consumerism and the wealth, uh, the land ownership, um, all of the wealth in the cathedrals, the, the wealth that was being transferred from the popes to the cardinals to the bishops and all those who were, were purchasing positions in the life of the church called simony. Um, you remember how Simon wanted to buy uh, gifts in the book of Acts. He wanted to buy spiritual gifts. Uh, there were positions in the Roman Catholic Church and medieval church being purchased so that people could have power because there was such a close connection between the state and the church. And, and so these positions were powerful political and ecclesiastical positions. And these men were not spiritual men. We see that in the modern-day health and wealth movement and even in many forms of broad evangelicalism. Secondly, the Bible is at best minimized and at worst ignored in both of these traditions. Um, in the Roman Catholic Church, of course, uh, we had idolatrous worship. Uh, medieval Catholics confused the glory of God with statues and images. Uh, worship, they worshipped the elements of the Lord's Supper, uh, believing the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, to be Christ himself sacrificed at every Mass. And unwarranted pomp and ceremony bringing more focus on the outward forms than the invisible realities. And so we see that as well in a lot of the entertainment-focused um, uh, uh, evangelical worship, uh, where there is so much uh, eye candy, as it were, all around that we get caught up in, in the outward and we forget about um, the message it itself. Um, we need to be careful about these things uh, and learn from the Protestant Reformation. Uh, now, a bit of history, a bit of history. Um, it's important to remember that uh, it wasn't like there was just total darkness until Martin Luther showed up, as if the gospel had been lost uh, between St. Augustine uh, uh, in the early church and Luther, uh, that for 800 years there was nothing. Uh, that, is, that is not uh, the case. There were always pockets of of passionate, Christ-centered believers in the medieval church in spite of uh, many of the erroneous teachings. But it was not until the 14th century uh, that the Lord in His providence began stirring hearts in an extraordinary way. And two men who led the way in this were John Wycliffe of England and John Huss, or Jan Huss, of um, Bavaria, what we now know as the Czech Republic. Who was John Wycliffe? John Wycliffe lived from 1330 to 1384. 
Uh, he was a professor and theologian uh, at the University of Oxford. Some have called, some have called him the morning star of the Reformation, uh, since many of his writings uh, confronted the heretical doctrines of the 14th century uh, church. His passion for God and his word uh, really began in the midst of fulfilling his doctoral obligations by preparing a series of lectures on the entire Bible. Although the church of his time placed the authority of the Pope, confessions, and councils above or equal with the authority of Scripture, he taught, uh, he taught that the Scriptures alone held the unadulterated truth of God. From his study of the Word, he attacked the unscriptural practice of religious orders and the doctrine of transubstantiation. Uh, so Wycliffe was, uh, uh, was poking around and uh, upset the authorities, of course. His teachings were condemned by Oxford University in 1381. He spent the latter part of his life writing pamphlets and books setting forth God's truth, and his writings had a powerful influence on a man named Jan Hus. Jan Hus lived from 1372 to 1415. This bold Czech reformer, after reading the works of Wycliffe and even translating one of his books from Latin to Czech, began denouncing the decadent lives of the Catholic priests and bishops. Incidentally, so many of the academic writings that were being done in that day were written in what language? Latin. So that means that all of those who are schooled in Latin, which all the academics were, would be able to read each other's work. So it wasn't like they were confined to their own language. And so as these, these uh, theologians were writing treatises in Latin, then uh, these treatises were being read by men all over, and many of those treatises would be then translated into the language of, of the people. And so um, Wycliffe, uh, uh, Jan Hus, rather, like Wycliffe, made it clear that it was the Bible that held the highest authority in the church, not the words of the pope or the bishops. The Pope in 1407 ordered Jan Hus not to preach because thousands were being impacted by his ministry. In 1415, something eventful happened. Uh, Jan Hus was called to the Council of Constance. And when he was called to the Council of Constance, he was given a safe conduct. Now, a safe conduct was an assurance by the church that if you come... We will not hurt you. We want to discuss your theology with you. We want to talk about this. We want to discuss it with you. But we are not going to imprison you. We're not going to take you into custody. We want to talk to you, but you will be able to safely come and safely leave. Well, this promise or safe conduct was revoked after he shared his beliefs about the Word of God and against transubstantiation and other doctrines, he was immediately prison, imprisoned. After being questioned and harassed for holding to biblical truth, he was burned alive at the stake on July 6, 1415, and he died singing the Psalms. It's quite a moving account of him being uh, drawn out into the fields and placed upon uh, the wooden stake and burned uh, to death. Exactly 100 years later, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther was lecturing 
on the book of Romans at the University of Wittenberg. He had not yet believed on the gospel until he came to the verses that we are considering this evening and, and, and as we have considered in the past, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Now, when you first read this, this text uh, and you read about the righteousness of God that is revealed and the, the, the righteous shall live by faith, uh, one who doesn't understand this text might think, that doesn't sound like good news to me, that the righteousness of God is being revealed to us and that the righteous live by faith. I don't want the retributive righteousness of God to come to me, and I don't want to have this language that the righteous shall live by faith because I'm not righteous, and thus I must not be able to live. And this was the idea uh, that people had, and Luther had it himself. Luther would go over and over again to his father uh, confessor uh, named Johann von Staupitz, and he would confess his sin. And he would do so over and over and over again and wonder if he would ever be free from the weight of the guilt of the sin that so sorely uh, uh, he experienced and overwhelmed him. He was hopeless. He was in the darkness. He knew that God's standard of righteousness was perfection. And he could not lower it if he was truly a holy God. And so he was overwhelmed with guilt and he would, he would beat himself and he would, he would cry out to God and he would stay up. Uh, all night praying, and he would fast, and he would confess over and over again to his mentor. Then, by the Spirit's effectual calling and work of regeneration, Luther's mind, by grace, was illumined to understand Romans one seventeen, that it was not speaking of God's retributive justice, but rather the gift of His righteousness. Freely imputed to the, this is Luther's words, freely imputed to the sinner by sovereign grace on the basis of Christ's righteous life and sacrificial death on the cross. God's righteousness revealed in the gospel is that very righteousness that is required of us and given to us in Jesus in his lecture on Romans, Luther states this, quote, For God does not want to save us by our own, but by an extraneous righteousness, a righteousness outside of us, one that does not originate in ourselves, which does not arise on earth, but comes from heaven. That's the righteousness that God wants to save us by, and he revealed this righteousness to us in his Son, this concept, of course, as, as uh, Luther's brain and synapses began to fire, uh, thinking about how this gift of righteousness is not just something taught in Romans 1, 16 and 17, but is taught all over the Bible, even the Old Testament. Uh, you can imagine uh, Luther. In fact, some of you uh, who have come to the Reformed faith would have had the experience that I did, that once I came to understand the sovereignty of God in salvation and all things, suddenly the whole Bible seemed to open up and to uh, clearly uh, demonstrate this. In Psalm 98, 1 and 2, it says, O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath wrought salvation for him. The Lord hath made known his salvation. Listen, his righteousness hath he openly showed in the sight of the nations. 
Isaiah 46, 13. I will bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So over and over again in the book of Psalms, in the book of Isaiah, and elsewhere in the Old Testament, we have this language. And uh, we recognize that it is showing us our salvation. John Murray uh, writes that, quote, "...the making known of salvation and the showing forth or revelation of righteousness are parallel expressions and convey substantially the same thought. Hence, the language of the Old Testament, uh, in the language of the Old Testament, the salvation of God and the righteousness of God in such contexts are virtually synonymous." The working of salvation and the revelation of righteousness are to the same effect. And this is why the apostle can say that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, for therein is revealed the righteousness of God. And so, again, he's saying that when the salvation of God and the righteousness of God are set forth in these texts I've just read in Isaiah and the Psalms and elsewhere, it's setting forth that the righteousness is the gift that God gives us in order to be saved. Luther, in his own words, said that when he finally came to understand this amazing grace, this gift, that he felt himself, quote, in his own words, to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. He writes, the whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. So you recognize before Paul saw this this word righteousness in Romans 1.17 as God's retributive justice and righteousness, but understanding it properly, he saw it as a gift from God in Christ. And so he saw it as the gate to heaven. In other words, what Luther saw are what we see in the five solas. That salvation is revealed in the scriptures alone. That salvation is through Christ alone. That salvation is by the grace of God alone. That salvation is through faith alone. And that salvation is for the glory of God alone. Each of these solas that we see in Scripture, it's just a Latin shorthand for alone. Uh, Each of these points arises from all of Scripture, but it's really summarized in Romans 1, 16 and 17, where Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So, by way of, of overview, what are the five solas of the Reformation? Well, the first one is sola scriptura. Can you say that? Sola scriptura? Sola scriptura. The Bible alone. A great pastor, John. The Bible alone what? The Bible alone is the authoritative all-sufficient word of the living God. Sola Scriptura. We are saved by the truth of Scripture alone, which points us to the gospel. Again, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, it says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. 
It's revealed. Revealed through what? The Word of God. And then it says, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Revelation. It is written. It is Scripture alone to which we look. It is in God's Word that we find the truth leading to salvation and nowhere else. God's Word is authoritative and sufficient and necessary for salvation and eternal life. It points the lost sinner to Christ. It exhorts us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. During Luther's time, the Bible had become secondary to tradition. You did not have priests proclaiming the Word of God. They were turned around with their backs facing the congregation and they were doing their thing, going through the liturgy at the table, way out in front of the church, and you were way in the back of the church, and you couldn't hear what was going on. And even if you could, you wouldn't understand it because it was in what? Latin. There was no singing. If there was singing and you were in a cathedral, it would have been done by the choirs. You would not have sung. You would have sat there and watched something that you did not understand, and it would have been immensely superstitious. What else do you do when no one's teaching you? When you don't understand what's going on, you start speculating about what's happening. And so you come up with various ideas and, and, and this is the way the people lived in fear and in ignorance and purchasing things like indulgences. Indulgences. You know, many people walk into St. Peter's in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica, and, um, and they're so... Uh, overwhelmed and wowed by uh, St. Peter's. And, uh, of course, architecturally, um, it's a magnificent building. But we shouldn't celebrate too much because St. Peter's Basilica was, was funded by the selling of indulgences. What are indulgences? Indulgences are little pieces of paper blessed by the Pope which guarantee for you Less time in purgatory. Less time in purgatory. I, I'm, I'm, turning, I'm, I'm turning off my Wi-Fi here because I'm having um, PTSD from when I was preaching a couple years ago and I said the word Assyria and my, my iPad started talking to me because it thought I said Siri. Um, but, uh, but this is what they were selling. I, indulgences little pieces of paper that guarantee you less time in purgatory. Purgatory is not even a biblical doctrine. But you could pay a certain amount of money, not only for yourself to spend less time in purgatory, but even for family members who are there. And, and they may get to spend 100,000 years less time in purgatory if you just buy this document for uh, some change. And that's the... Uh, uh, that's what was going on in medieval Rome. So the Bible had become secondary. Because the Bible is not being taught, people believe the idea that one could gain eternal life by, being, by buying pieces of paper uh, called indulgences. Uh, the Bible is not being taught, and superstition was being embraced. But when the Protestant reformers began to emerge, uh, what we had was this principle called ad fontis, or back to the fountain, back to the source. 
uh, scholars, instead of relying on secondary and tertiary literature, this was happening, by the way, in all kinds of academia uh, and in the, in the universities, people were going back not just to uh, secondary and tertiary texts, but to the original sources and the original languages. Um, this meant going back to the original writings of historians and philosophers, uh, but especially, as we're talking about tonight, the original languages of the scriptures, of, of the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament. And so there was a revival of both language study and expository preaching all over Europe. It was precisely the preaching and teaching of the Word of God in a systematic way through books of the Bible that Reformation spread all over Europe and revival all over Western Europe, some parts of Eastern Europe as well, and later in the New World of the Americas. A passionate belief in the inspiration, inerrancy, authority, sufficiency, and life-changing power of God's Word drove men like Calvin and Knox and Luther to preach upwards of six times a week. John Calvin stated in his 61st sermon on Deuteronomy, quote, Let the pastors boldly dare all things by the word of God. Let them constrain all the power, glory, and excellence of the world to give place to and to obey the divine majesty of this word. Let them enjoin everyone by it, from the highest to the lowest. Let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture uh, the sheep, kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning, if necessary, but let them do it all according to the word of God. Amen. And so that's the first sola, sola scriptura. Secondly, we have solus Christus, solus Christus, by Christ alone. Uh, in our passage in Romans, as stated earlier, it is solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ alone that a person can be justified. We don't add one stitch to the garment of salvation that Christ gives to us. If we were to try to add anything, it's proof that we don't understand it in the first place. Christ has accomplished it all. Luther rightly stated this, quote, that world and reason have no idea how difficult it is to grasp that Christ is our justification. So deeply embedded in us, like second nature, is the trust in works. It is so embedded in us. We are wired to trust in works, which is why we so desperately need the gospel daily and every Lord's Day. And so we glory in this, this gospel, that only in Christ, only through faith in Christ can we be forgiven and made right with God and be brought back into fellowship with God, to be restored to communion with God. Christ says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the uniqueness of our mediator, 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. Christ alone, uh, the scriptures alone are the word of God. We are saved by the truth revealed in them, and Christ alone is our Savior. Thirdly, we have sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola gratia. Uh, Paul, uh, earlier in Romans chapter 1, mentions that he received grace. 
We receive grace. Later in verse 7, he mentions grace in the context of a blessing. In verses 16 and 17, the grace of God is foundational. Why? Because salvation is a gift revealed from above. Not because of anything uh, in us, but all unconditional. God's unconditional electing love in Christ. We are not Christians because of our own goodness or intelligence or morality or family connections, but because of God's sovereign grace and mercy and setting his love upon us before the foundation of the world. It's all of grace. And so it's uh, sola scriptura, solus Christus, and sola gratia. And fourthly, it's sola fide, by faith alone. By faith alone. And so in our text, once again, Paul appeals to the Old Testament for theological confirmation. He quotes the prophet, prophet Habakkuk uh, in chapter 2 and verse 4, which states, The righteous shall live by faith. This is another pillar of the Protestant Reformation. We are saved by faith alone. By faith alone. Not faith plus works but faith alone in Christ alone and all by grace. What is faith? What is faith? It's the instrument given by God whereby we receive Christ and live in Christ. It is received as a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and exercised throughout our entire lives. Uh, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we come to the final uh, uh, sola, and that is soli deo gloria. Soli deo gloria. It's, all of this is to, to the glory of God alone, lest any man should boast. This is the battle cry of the Reformation and needs to be heralded once again in our own day. The question we must ask is this. Among all of the hype of contemporary evangelicalism and the consumerism, where is God? He's gotten lost. He's gotten lost in all of our activity, all of our busyness uh, in the modern church. Um, where are the simple means of grace? We want to keep them central in the life of the church. There's a quote uh, by A.W. Tozer, which I think is poignant here. Quote, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ennoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. This low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils among us with our loss of the sense of the majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence, end quote. David Wells once remarked in his book, it has always stuck with me, that God is resting lightly upon the modern church. He's resting lightly because we do not talk about his holiness and his glory and his majesty. We want to remove formality. Formalism? No, we don't want that but form and formality. Just like we tend to want to maintain in our weddings and in our funerals, 
form and formality, reverence, awe. Uh, these are the things that we have lost in the modern church, and God is resting lightly on the church because of this. But we must recover these, these, these solas and these emphases in the life of the church. And, of course, we have just skimmed them um, uh, this evening, and we will look at them more uh, in coming weeks, God willing. There's a beautiful Martin Luther statue in uh, the city of, of Worms, or Worms, Germany. Um, of course, that's where Luther gave his famous speech at the Diet, or Meeting of Worms. Uh, the imperial diet, or meeting, uh, of all the secular and ecclesiastical church leaders of the Holy Roman uh, Empire was there. And on April the 21st, 1521, Luther found himself before the Holy Roman Emperor and his assembly. Luther was given an opportunity to recant all of his preaching and all of his writings. And mind you, a little over a hundred years before, Jan Hus received a safe conduct. And he was burned at the stake. Luther, who left Wittenberg and traveled to Worms, had received a safe conduct. He was celebrated and heralded in every town in which he went through on his way to Worms. And he knew the story of Jan Hus. And he knew the corruption of the church. And he knew that he could die. But he went to make this stand for truth. Of course, we know afterwards he was kidnapped by uh, his own friend and placed in uh, the castle um, uh, for six months where he translated the, the Bible into German. But Luther, before the imperial diet, before the emperor, said this when they encouraged him time and again to, to recant. Uh, they don't want to hear his thoughts on his writings. They don't want to hear his explanations. They just want him to recant. Do you recant? And so Luther said this, since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Amen. Many years ago while serving the Lord in Germany, I had the privilege of going to this site where Luther defended the gospel on that day. Uh, in that place is a magnificent monument of Luther. He's holding up his Bible and he is preaching. And even as I prepared this sermon as I think about all that we've learned as a congregation over the years from church history, we must remember the blood that was spilled for sound doctrine. The men and the women who have given their lives that we would stand upon their shoulders and to be able to know and to proclaim and to spread this sound doctrine, this glorious gospel of grace. Looking upon Luther's statue, it was almost as if he was saying to me and saying to all of us, 
don't waver. Stand firm. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it, that gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And a salvation that is revealed by the scriptures alone, accomplished by Christ alone, given by grace alone, received by faith alone, and all to the glorious ends of the glory of God alone. And so even as we unpack these five solos over the next several weeks, God willing, uh, let us pray for a modern reformation, beginning, of course, in our own hearts and in our own church, for we always have ways to improve and to grow and to mature and to be more zealous, but also in the wider church, in our own denomination and in the wider church in America and around the world. Perhaps we, too, will see the kind of God-centered, Christ-exalting, spirit-dependent, word-focused Christianity that shook the world centuries ago. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for Paul's inspired words in Romans 1, 16, and 17, and how out from these words, and really out of the entirety of the Scriptures, come these these five pillars uh, of, of sound doctrine, uh, five pillars that, that really so defined the truth that came out of the Protestant Reformation. Lord, help us uh, as a church to stand firm in these five solas uh, and to give you all the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.